Welcome to episode four of Great Quarter Guys. I'm Seth Holm. I'm your host. I'm here with my traditional co-host, Kevin Hill. How uh, you doing? Today, how you doing, Kevin? Today, we've got two uh, great guests for you. We've got Peter Rinchler. He's CEO of Carrier Direct. We're going to get into an M&A discussion with him in just a minute. And secondly, we've got JB Hamps- JP Hampstead in here, and we're going to talk some Old Dominion. So, uh, Kevin, why don't we kick it off with some M&A discussion here? Yeah, I love M&A. There's there's nothing like M&A, Merger Monday, Merger Mania. And we had a couple big deals this week in transportation logistics. Uh, The first is Lineage Logistics purchased, uh, and I can't think of the name of the company right now. Merging Cold. Emerging. Emerging Cold in a cold storage space, which is a very interesting space in of itself. And then we had uh, a mega kind of a mega merger of 3PLs where Mode acquired SunTech, TTS. So both of them are, I think, are private equity backed. Um, so what's your take on on these developments, Peter? Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always really uh, intentional about why the deals happen. So, you know, you look at why Lineage bought Emerging Cold. Their intention was broader global footprint. Uh, emerging emerging cold's got a much bigger footprint in APAC, helps them expand into Asia. So to me, like that deal makes sense. Like it's 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 a great acquisition. It, it is, and, and cold storage is one of those great niches, and I love niches too. Niches are where the riches are, and cold storage private equity's been rolling that up over the past few years. Uh, because it's one area that has high barriers to entry. You can't really convert uh, a normal warehouse into a cold storage facility. And to build new capacity in uh, cold storage is very expensive, very time-consuming. Uh, part of that, I, I read in, in Bloomberg uh, that they did a d- deep dive on, on cold storage, is that they're marginalizing the, the small boutique startups and in, 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 in kind of forcing them out as they build scale, as private equity often does. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was reading about Emergent Cold. They were started in 20, 2017. By Elliott Management. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's Paul remarkable. Singer. Yeah, Paul Singer. Paul Singer, the, one of the best hedge funds of all time. And they own, what, 90% of Roadrunner uh, yeah, as well. Uh, I wasn't actually aware. I knew they had public equities and uh, distressed debt, but I, did, I didn't know they were in private equity. It makes sense, though. Yeah. But talk about a space that's just exploding. I mean, and, and yeah. to your point, it's, it's, high, it's uh, high cost, high barrier to entry. So it makes sense to be private equity backed. And, and then the roll-ups continue to happen. And it's big footprints. Yeah, it's, it's a nice multiple play yep. for private equity, which is what they, they love to do. They'd like to get those multiples off the, the leveraged buyouts. Uh, what about Mode and SunTech? You know, the, Mo- the Mode SunTech one's really interesting, particularly because Mode was spun out of Hub Group uh, a few years back. And, you know, SunTech is largely agent-based. And so... You know, it, there's a there's a different strategy than how Mode's uh, been operating historically. I haven't seen anything around what the intention for the SunTech acquisition is over time. Uh, whether they're going to integrate, are they going to do like a Global Trans or a or a Worldwide Express or a Blue Grace model where they try to take some of this new capital, buy back some of the agents in a creative manner? And I, I haven't heard that, but that's what I suspect as well, right? Yeah. So, so you have two big agent models of, of Mode and SunTech, and that's you know they're they're both private equity backed. So I think Jordan Companies, or not Jordan Companies. Do you have it there? Uh, who exactly owns uh, Mode, or who bought Mode from from Hub Group? Uh, but though that seems to be the natural the, the the natural play for that is you have all these agents. So you buy back the agents, you add to uh, your EBITDA, and you increase your multiple. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it makes sense. It's a proven strategy. Yeah, especially after what Global Trans did earlier this year uh, by, by selling, I mean, whatever private equity group, I, I can't think of the name uh, of the, the, the private equity group that, that sold or that they bought 
global no. transfer four hundred million and flipped it right back to one of the original private equity investors for nine hundred million. What, what do you think? Some of the so so whenever you have, uh, I think they both do over a billion dollars in gross revenue a year. So they, they are going to have to integrate. What are some of the risks to that? And what are some of the rewards as well? Yeah. So. Um, you know, it's interesting. I think uh, Renee at Global Trans has done a great job with with being very intentional about how they about how they make acquisitions and how they roll them into their business. You know, the risks are not actually doing the integration. What we see time and time again is, hey, two, three, two, three, four years after an acquisition's been made, people are still referring to the old companies. Um, they're still. They're, they're still referencing the old compensation programs. There might even be multiple training programs, one for the original business, one for the acquired business. So I think, I think that the biggest risk is just not actually taking the action needed to do the integration. Yeah, some of that could be cultural f- friction as well as, as technology. Yeah. Really getting, getting two legacy systems. I, I, I don't know what either of them really run, but I imagine they're both proprietary systems. And, and integrating those systems in, in together is got to be a challenge. I think that technology is certainly a huge barrier. The, the culture is a big component. Um, I think a lot of times executives fear mass attrition, so they, so they delay actually making some of the hard decisions, whereas the most successful integrations tend to happen when you just rip the Band-Aid. Hey, yeah. this is the new vision for the business. Let's get everybody on board because when everybody's rowing in the same direction, um, businesses can grow and succeed. Very good. Very good. So what's going on at Carrier Direct these days? Um, yeah, it's, it's a great question. So, so we are a consulting firm entirely focused on logistics and trucking, uh, carriers, 3PLs, freight brokerages of all sizes. Um, you know, there are really three things that we're hearing about a lot right now. One is what's the enterprise strategy for your business? If you're offering multimodal capabilities, how do you create a single customer experience? And also, how do you actually set up your operations to support that? Second thing we're hearing a lot is what's your long-term technology strategy? Um, not just what TMS you're using, but where do you need to be in three to five years and what tech do you need to support that? And then the third thing we're hearing about a lot is how are you handling your people? Are you everything from recruiting and hiring process to how you train and develop people and treat them over time? And so we were talking right before we stepped in the booth um, with, with Chad, who was asking a question about cradle to the grave, or the the split section, uh, w- w- the buy sell, sell. Model, b- buy sell model. That's right. Yep. So critical grave or or buy sell. What are you seeing as the the most popular right now? Well, it depends on on the stage of the business. So cradle to grave is a great is a is lower cost to, if you're starting from scratch. Um, buy sell the split buy sell the 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 American backhaulers kind of the quote unquote Chicago brokerage model requires more scale. You've got to have a big enough of a carrier team to be able to support uh, carrier relationships and, and sourcing capacity. Um, and so, you know, from our perspective, it, it depends on, on where the business is. It's interesting being in Chattanooga. There are a lot of Access, Access America folks that, that believe that cradle to grave is the, way to, is the way to grow and scale a brokerage because they saw Access America do it so successfully. Likewise, Anyone, anyone who's starting a brokerage or working at a brokerage coming out of Command, Coyote, some of the backhaulers, spinoffs in Chicago, fundamentally believe that the buy-sell model is the right one. You know, I, I, Access America was cradle, cradle to grave. I, yes. I don't know of any other freight brokerages. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Nolan. The, Nolan? Yeah. Or are they cradle Nolan's to grave? Nolan's cradle to grave. Okay. There's another one then. Um, all the ones I hear about that, that have really achieved scale and, and had the quick growth have all been the, the buy-sell model. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the Access America guys, um, you know, they talk about how they, they, they hit growth plateaus. And mm-hmm. at some point, at a certain scale, the, the split by sell model really does make sense. Yeah, we, we always try to do that at the brokers that I worked at uh, to, to go off to the buy sell, but we could never make it happen. And, and I'm, not, I'm not quite sure why we couldn't make it happen, but it was always a struggle. Uh, Cradle of the Grave, I did like, but you hit your own plateau. Well, you only have so much time in the day. Yeah, and, and if you're yeah. spending if you're spending part of your time prospecting new customers and part of the time servicing freight and finding carriers, you know, yeah. it, it, uh, it's it, it is a disaster. To try to time management, uh, time, time manage that. Right, I, I did a lot of flatbed loads in and out of Mexico, so the the problems issues that came up came up every day, and I can never block out an hour. 
because you always have an emergency, right? Yep. If, you, if you're doing $25,000, $30,000 a, a month in gross margin, uh, you're always going to have loads on the road with some issue. Yep. Yeah. Can't I, get away from it. Yeah. And I think that the biggest, so we've actually helped a few, a few growing businesses that had hit plateaus transition from a cradle to grave to a buy sell model. The number one inhibitor is uh, trust. It's yeah. that, it's that, yeah. hey, this is my customer relationship and I don't trust someone else to service the business. And I went through that too, right? I, I got this business. I went out, I cold called these people. I got in front of them multiple times. I did a bid. I won it. And now I'm going to pass it off. And if something goes wrong, all that works for nothing. I know I can control it, but I have to pass it off. Yeah. And, and, and they're really, you know, from our perspective, there's, there's one thing that's proven to help address that standard process that's defined yeah. that, that is clearly communicated across the board. Like I would feel better handing a customer over if I knew that there's a clearly defined process for how you're going to cover the load. You have to have that, right? And, and it's critical. And the problem with cradle to the grave, or one of the issues with cradle to the grave, is that you kind of own your own book of business, so you service it the way you know how to, and it varies drastically broker by broker, right? Your, your management styles of your book of business, and then you go to a standardized operating procedure, which... Or it's usually the best way to operate, but you're like, well, I don't operate like that. Yeah. You know, and you say, I, I don't operate. I, we don't really need to do this. So you have all this pushback and uh, it goes back to trust. Yeah, it does. It really, it, yeah. it's, it's critical. Well, very good. Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's been a pleasure. And um, next time you're in Chattanooga, come back and see us. Yeah. Always love being here. Thanks y'all for having me. You bet. Thanks. Peter. Thanks. All right. Well, we are going to bring in J.P. Hampstead here. We're going to have a discussion on Old Dominion. Why don't I go ahead and give a uh, preview of what we're going to be talking about? Um, so uh, one of my favorite investment books is a book called A Hundred Baggers, and uh, it's written by an author named Chris Meyer. And the concept of this book is that uh, you make a hundred times your money. Um, so what I did is I took a look at transportation stocks um, and which ones were actually a hundred baggers. And the very top one on our list is Old Dominion, which has returned something like a hundred times since 2000. And in order to do this, it's a pretty lofty goal. You need to return something like 20 to 25% a year for 20 years. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to break down Old Dominion's business model. JP knows Old Dominion. He knows that. Uh, so the infamous yeah. Kager? 20, 25% yes. Kager? Yes, the Kager, the Which compound com annual growth rate. Um, so we're going to break down Old Dominion's business model, and then we're going to talk about why it's been such a great investment. And Old Dominion is really the gold standard is what it's actually referred to uh, across transportation. So we're going we're gonna to try to figure out and try to suss out why that's actually the case. So, JP, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Of course. How are you doing? Good. 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 So, so before we even get into Old Dominion, let's talk about your new role here at Freight Waves. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess it was announced a couple days ago, um, but it's been in the works for a while, as you guys know. But I'm kind of transitioning over from editorial to research. So I'm heading up you know, a small little team, um, kind of making some sort of market-driven reports. Um, and wh what we're really focused on is trucking markets, intermodal markets, and eventually also maritime and you know, sort of ocean container uh, a trade and how all of those three sort of interact um, and, and trying to focus on some leading indicators. Very good. I am so proud of you. I met you down in Miami about two years ago. You've been in Freight Waves for <laughs> well, just a few. Yeah, a little over two years. Yep. Yeah, a little over two years. I met you within, you know, a couple months, maybe six weeks of, of at the Stiefel conference, right? Yeah. And uh, and you have made yourself an expert. Thanks. You were like one of the, the sharpest he, cats I know. He he serves as a goal for me. I've been here in six months in transportation. I knew nothing when I came in. And so I sit, we sit next to JP. And so after two years, I hope I'm, I'm on his level. Dude, it's been, it's, you been will. A, it's been a blast, man. It's been really fun. And obviously, I wouldn't know anything without all the great people at Freight Waves, uh, hearing all their stories and most importantly just them being so generous with their time and talking and, and answering my questions so it's been it's been great to learn and it's, it's good that in transportation trucking 
logistics, freight brokerage, the, the stories aren't boring. That's but right. It, that's right. Uh, they're not boring and um, they're illustrative of you know, so many different things. Just the psychology, the market participants, the perennial problems in the industry, all of the different sorts of, uh, you know, bad actors and the difference between uh, perception and reality and yeah. so many cases. I don't know. It's, 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 been, it's been a blast. Very good. Well, Seth, let's get into Old Dominion. Let's do it. So the way I'm going to do this is we're going to kick off sort of an overview of the LTL market and then break that down and then break down why within that market ODFL is, you know, by far the blue chip within the industry. So, JP, let's start off with how does the LTL industry just differ just generally from long haul trucking? Yeah. So L- LTL sells just a portion of a trailer to its customers. So they're looking for customers who may only have a few pallets, customers who don't want to pay for a, a whole truckload, a whole 53 foot trailer to be moved. Um, and that's, it's really interesting. That's, you know, it's, it's a huge industry obviously. Um, and that has really sort of profound consequences for how they run their businesses. Because when people are only paying for a portion of the trailer, then it's incumbent on the transportation company to, you know, make sure that every truck that's moving has enough revenue on it. Right. And, and it becomes quite complicated because then you're, you're picking up freight in a certain order and loading the trailer in a certain order, unloading it in a certain order, um, you know, oftentimes even the driver experience is very different, right? It's very much more physically demanding. So people are making multiple stops, getting in and out of the truck, you know, you know, 10, 15 times a day. Uh, the, the freight itself is much more vulnerable to damage because it's being loaded and unloaded um, with forklifts over and over again over the course of a day. And I would think, too, that the the operations in the warehouse – the warehouses that the cross docks are also need to be of a higher velocity and are more complex. Gotcha. Okay. So what the way I'm thinking about this is we're basically, there's this thing called an initiation report and we're, that's what we're basically going to lay out here for you guys. So you're going to understand the industry and then you're going to understand perfectly why LTL is the dominant. I mean, uh, ODFL is the dominant player. So let's also, let's hit on the, who are the main LTL players, JP? Um, so you've got, so first of all, you have like the big parcel integrators that also have LCL divisions like FedEx and, um, UPS. Yeah. Then you've got the recent, um, Brad Jacobs roll up XPO, which was originally going to be, um, asset light, but with the purchase of Conway also now has a very sizable LTL operation. Um, you have some legacy, regional carriers but then the two the th- there's sort of three uh I, no, I guess three three big ones other than odfl right um arc best uh yrc and saya mm-hmm. and of those three arc best and yrc are unionized um they're 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 quite large companies saya is not unionized but is is much smaller and it's sort of the smallest of the the top ten LTL carriers. Is Saya public? Yes, yeah, and that is, and that, right. this plays the the non unionized the ODFLs and the Sias uh, get higher multiples in the stock market. Correct. That's correct. Um, uh, the unionized LTL drivers are Teamsters. Um, these uh, these companies have um, big exposure to underfunded pension plans, and you know, in general, their, their cost of labor are higher, and they just you know. It's, 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 it becomes a problem when, and I guess we'll get into this later, when you talk about investing in growth and what to do with your extra cash, it's, I, I think ODFL has a clear advantage over some of its larger competitors. Right. Okay. So ODFL has a story. It, uh, you know, the other thing about this book, The 100 Baggers, is uh, the stocks that are led by either founders or founding families generally outperform the market. It's a, it sound, doesn't sound by, uh, like a lot, but it's something like three for three to four percent annually over a very long uh, time period. So That's sizable, yeah, it, it adds up to a huge difference yeah. over a number of years. And so ODFL is no exception here. They are led by the Congdon family. Uh, this business started in 1934. They were just doing one lane in Virginia. 
Uh, they went public in 1991, and growth has just kind of exploded here. Um, but I guess, JP, so let's get in the, you know, the basics here. So why is ODFL the industry leader, and why is it growing faster than everyone else in the industry? I think it, what it really comes down to, which is something that you'll hear from management um, in investor presentations and on earnings calls, but it's, it's a statement that also has to be unpacked very carefully, is essentially that they command very high prices for superior service. Now, the, the question is, how do they differentiate themselves in the marketplace? And what is the secret sauce to that service? You know, that, of course, is, is much more complex and is multifaceted. And, you know, we, we'll talk about all those different angles. But essentially, you know, their, their, their labor costs might be a little bit lower. The price they charge is a little bit higher. And they take that difference, reinvest it in the business for growth at a time when some of these other companies may be operating on much thinner margins and are looking to divest themselves of assets. If you look at it on the on, on the quadrant, right, you're either you beat everyone on low costs or higher service. But the creme de la creme of that that the, the that that analysis or that quadrant is to be a low cost leader and be able to charge premium for your service and with the o, they have the best OR uh, in, in the industry that they command that. That, that that sector that or that that quadrant that everyone covets. Yeah, it's not only the lowest OR in LTL; it's the lowest OR in all of trucking. It's in the high seventies right now. Now, over a full cycle, it may be more like the low eighties. But um, just to give everybody out there a uh, a feeling for just how big of a gap it is, I think it's over six hundred basis points uh, versus their next uh, biggest competitor in yeah. LTL. Wow, it's a so huge. That's, that's, it's a huge difference. Yeah. And they, they command a premium price with that, that that is hard for their competitors to even get to their pricing power, right? Right. And the, their costs, you know, the, the cost management. I remember um, talking to Zach Strickland early on, um, especially when he had just come from a, a national LTL carrier that's not publicly traded, but what he would talk to customers and he worked in pricing and financial analysis. And when he realized that, he was bidding against Old Dominion. Be like, oh, you guys already use Old Dominion. Okay, well, you should probably just keep them because they're going to do a better job. Than us. Right. That reminds me of uh, in the Steve Jobs biography uh, by Walter I Isaacson. Um, ODFL is kind of like the Ritz Carlton, right? The reason why they get this premium pricing is uh, looking through their investor deck. They have something like 99% on time ratio, and they've had this for like a decade and only a, a point. 2%. Uh, is it a claims ratio? Is that it, JP? Yeah. And uh, you'll hear other, um, you know, high performing LTL carriers say we have a claims ratio of less than 1%. So I kind of take that to mean 0.9%. Right. So, and yeah. so think about that 0.2%. Just think about that for a second. Times. That's two trucks out of a thousand that they're messing up on. That's just unbelievable. Yeah. Or just actually two shipments. Uh, even. Yeah. You know, right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Okay. All right, so here's what drives uh, LTL revenue. So before we get into why this stock has gone up so much and why this thing's a well-oiled machine and so well-run, uh, LTL generates revenue a little bit differently than full truckload. Uh, full truckload gets paid on a per-mile basis. LTLs gets really three things drive the revenue here. There's tonnage, there's, uh, so there's shipments, there's revenue per hundred weight, that's the other key metric, and then there's weight per shipment. And the thing about weight per shipment, that can be a huge margin driver. So if you think about just adding more pounds in the truck, you can do that at a very low incremental cost. So ODFL is good at all three. Uh, over the long term, they've grown their revenue at about a 14% CAGR, and that's split mostly between tonnage. I believe it's about between 8 and 10% on tonnage and then charging about 4% more uh, for their shipments each year. Um, but just in terms of why ODFL has gone up so much as a stock and as a company, uh, these are just some really, really good statistics here. So they have this in their investor presentation as well. Since 2000, their revenue has grown at a compound average uh, annual growth rate of 14%. Their operating income has grown in the low 20% range, and that's because their uh, 
operating ratio has gone from 95% about 20 years ago to under 80%. And then their earnings have grown at 25% a year. And then their multiple, the PE multiple has expanded. So this in all in all, and they've only had two down years in the last 20 years. They had 2008, which was a pretty rough year. And then 2016, they were barely even down. So it's just been straight up and to the right. If you look, you, you look through the slide deck. I mean, it's literally, it's almost perfect. Yeah. And it's the, the way that they've been able to weather these cycles. Cause I mean, trucking is an industry where one year you make a lot of money and the very next year you lose a lot of money. Most companies offer services that are fairly commodified. And so you are commoditized. And so you can't really, uh, charge you, the premium. You, you're, you're essentially, yeah, you're, you're riding the market. Um, and Old Dominion's not really like that. Yep. And so, it, you know, one way they do it is they have these service centers. So let's turn to this slide uh, from if, if you're looking at the latest earnings presentation, it's slide 15 in the deck. And the reason why I bring this up is so their service center capacity is a big part of the LTL business model. And the main takeaway from this slide is that ODFL, over the last 10 years, they've added about 15% capacity to their service centers, while the whole rest of the industry has contracted by more than 20%. And why, so why do you think they're doing that, and why has that paid off for them, JP? Um, you know, they have a philosophy of investing ahead of their growth. They never want a lack of either tractors, trailers, or service centers to get in the way. Of their, so they, they have, you know, literally like strategy people who evaluate real estate opportunities and think about the placement of, of um, new service centers. And, you know, one thing, I mean, one way to think about how this kind of like goes, how this shows up, right, on an income statement, on something like, um, you know, weight per shipment or um, something like that is that the more service centers you have and the, the more efficient your network can run. So the, the, the closer everything is together and the shorter – the transit times between your service centers, the more predictable they are, the fewer times you have to cut a truck before it has everything that's supposed to be on it on it. And so you're always running the truck as full as possible, and therefore you're, you're getting you know all of that revenue and all of those shipments on, on each truck. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I had a discussion with Zach Strickland about this too uh, the other day just to get – because I am new to this industry, but – you know, the LTL industry is, is more complex than trucking. That was my other takeaway with him. But, Much more. Yes. And he said, you know, you really need that hub and spoke network with your service centers. You got to be perfect. And so, you know, you can't miss your cutoff times and you got to, you got to be extremely efficient. Right. And so if you, th- if you imagine, um, multiple customers on a single trailer and, cus- you know, customers freight coming on and off of that trailer, any, you know, almost like an airline, right? Any, any um, delay in in one uh, shipment is going to cascade. Yeah, messes up the whole network. Cascade through the network and, and mess more things up and more things up, and eventually you end up having to send um, trucks and leave freight behind, and when you're failing loads, you're you're, you're not generating um, revenue on those miles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So. Let's get into the, the, the latest segments here on the on Old Dominion. So this used to be a fifty bill I mean a fifty million, excuse me, revenue company. It's now about five billion. Um, but to put it in context, LTL is a huge industry. Just in the US it's a forty billion dollar industry. So they only have about ten percent market share. Um, and they're still growing. A lot of the analysts think maybe they won't put up that, you know, fourteen percent revenue growth and twenty five percent earnings growth, but they think they can continue to grow double digits at least in a healthy freight market. Um, but I guess my question for you, JP, is what does the future look like for Old Dominion? Can they continue to really grow at these uh, above industry rates and continue to take market share? I think they can definitely continue to take market share. I think that, again, the way that the dynamics of these networks you know, sort of play out and the way that building more density makes your service better it makes you, and it also helps you make more money it's like it's like a snowball mm-hmm. and a lot of its com- competitors are sort of uh feeling the opposite effects where they're shutting down service centers it's becoming you know they're getting less dense they're they're making less money per tractor they're they, you know one of the one of the stats i love about old dominion is that 
they have a higher trailer to tractor ratio than any of their competitors. And so LTL carry a lot of times, you know, if you're driving down the road, you'll see an LTL truck or an old Dominion truck or a SIA truck or even a, you know, FedEx LTL truck with two small trailers uh, mm-hmm. behind the, the tractor. Yeah. Pub trailers. Yeah. Pub trailers. Um, and that's so that, you know, you can sort of, you can get drop and hug so that you can, you know, drop off the, the, the back trailer and unload, um, you know, the, the, the trailer in the front without having to, you know, spend a lot of time digging through other people's freight to get to, to the pallets or whatever that you want to get to. The point is, is that um, Old Dominion has the cash to buy a lot of trailers and therefore speed up how fast things happen in their network. And, and so fewer of their trucks have to wait for things to be unloaded. Um, and, yeah, they, they just they, they move faster. Exactly right. And on the revenue side, what really jumps out to me whenever you're reading the, the financial reports and, and investment banking uh, research reports that we, we pour over every day here mm-hmm. at FreightWaves is they manage profitability customer by customer. And that takes a lot of discipline. And it's rare, right? It is For very this rare. industry, it's pretty rare. Yeah, because this is discipline. Right? There's pressure the whole... on people to grow. They, they, mm-hmm. they get the benefit of the doubt because... They have a long tenured and uh, exceptional and proven management, and people trust them, and they know that they're going to do what's right for the long term future of the business. Mm-hmm. It's 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 amazing to, to to be able to 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 do that, and that's what really jumps out the discipline it takes. And, and JP was talking about that discipline in corporate strategy, in planning, and and basically your operations that they they convert that over to being very deliberate. Uh, about their their pricing and, and their their profitability per customer on the revenue side as well. Absolutely, and if any of their executives are listening, we would love to get them in here on this podcast and hear more about that. Um, okay, so last last part here on Old Dominion. So our you know everything's great. It's a well oiled machine. You've got the operating ratio going down into the right, and you've got revenue going up into the right, and they're doing this just year in and year out. And, you know, it's still only 10% market share. They've doubled their, if you look in their investor presentation, they're in all six geographies in the U.S. And they've doubled their market share just over the last five or 10 years in every single, I mean, that's the other thing that's, the, the performance is so consistent and, and so even. Um, but so what I thought I would finish up here with, is, are there any knocks on the business model? And I, JP, I thought of three, but I want to I hear out if you have any more. But so number one, and, and you often see this in the stock market, but it's, it is priced as best in class. So we, uh, it, Old Dominion's volumes uh, just in the latest quarter have gone negative for the first time in three years. And then for almost 10 years before that, 2008, and yet the stock still kind of trades at a low to mid-20s PE. So that's at a big premium. Uh, the, just to put that in context, the unionized LTL peers trade at like a high single-digit PE multiple. And the non, the other, I think, SIA trades at like a mid-teens multiple. So you're talking about a 50 to 100% premium. Now, the other two things that I noticed were, so Old Dominion is, their capital allocation is great, but it is capital intensive. They spend an average of 15% of revenue. Uh, on capital expenditures, and that's kind of split between real estate, IT, and, and trailers and tractors. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're able to still, they still produce really good return on equity and return on invested capital while doing that. And then lastly, we kind of touched on this earlier, but it is slightly cyclical. I mean, but then again, everything is, right? I mean, there, there is no business model out there that is not cyclical. I mean, even Amazon would be a, a cyclical stock. So, Anything else you can think of, JP, or anything else that that, that worries you at all about them going forward? Um, I think you know maybe one sort of uncertain um, uncertainty that that we could think about, and maybe it would be obviously useful to to look at some earnings calls and see if analysts have asked management about this already. But to what extent has their LTL volumes and business benefited from the growth of e-commerce? To what extent will e-commerce continue to grow very rapidly? And then are what what happens when other transportation companies, including perhaps Amazon, mm-hmm. try to get in and sort of capture some of that opportunity? Um, you know, I think they're in a great position to do really quick deliveries to manage small shipments and, and to um, 
you know, uh, do tr- you know great visibility and, and things like that. But I think it'll. I think that space is becoming more and more competitive. If you look at the number of like technology startups and the that, that are entering the space and being funded, and the number of other transportation companies who are trying to get in on that action, you know that that that's interesting. I would just I don't necessarily think it's a knock on the business model. It's just something I would like to hear management talk more about. You know, do, do you think that the, the rise of e-commerce is going to um, take business away from the traditional LTL model? So, it, it, as I say, that final mile will will take some of that volume directly to the consumer to where a lot of like, like LTL in the classic model doesn't really do too I mean they do home delivery but they don't really cross the door. Do you think that's a threat to the the traditional LTL model? Um well, I think about it this way. Like so XPO, we know, you know, an LTL carrier, they handled postal injection for Amazon. There is they had this, you know, um, sort of notorious breakup um, that cost XPO $600 million of revenue. And so I think that LTL is intimately involved in just the whole sort of idea of e-commerce, of small, fast shipments. But and, and, and actually, I've heard John Larkin in, in a presentation say that he thinks that LTL carriers benefit the most from e-commerce taking retail market share. That's that's really interesting because one of the things Zach and I talked about, so the split, just to give you guys an idea, the split of ODFL's business is about 60% industrial and about 40% retail. So in that 60%, obviously, that's not going to really benefit from e-commerce. But on the 40% side, he... He actually took the other side of that. Um, he said, you know, that uh, LTL is not heavily involved in, in e-commerce. Um, so it, w- it will be interesting. I mean, I know XPO uh, was heavily involved in, in e-commerce. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah. And, th- you know, they have the physical infrastructure and the, the network design to, I mean, you know, one of the, the crazy stats about Old Dominion is that, you know, they don't even. If you look at that that list, that's slide fifteen. They they have almost the fewest number of terminals, except for Saya, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. But they have su- such a national reach. They have five. They have five service centers in Montana, so like they want to be able to reach every point of the country fairly quickly. And, and that's not overkill, in your opinion. So why why is that? It, it seems like that, given the the population there, why is that critical to have five? I mean, I don't know the specifics yeah. of, the, of the Montana <laughs> okay. business. It, okay. Really, it doesn't really matter because if you have the lowest OR and you can charge the highest prices, let them have 10. Yeah. 10 in Montana. Who cares, right? Five in Montana. Who cares? Well, the more, I, mean, I think the general idea is the more service centers they get, and while everyone else is moving the other direction mm-hmm. and they're growing, that oh. their, their, their advantage widens. Yes. And so it, that's, that, that's correct. And, and I think eventually, once you have that, that, that infrastructure in place, you have to think about like you're already close to the consumer in, in some ways, um, and so how do you think about what you know? Wh- what are the areas of my business that are going to grow rapidly? It's probably not going to be industrial, right? I mean, re- that's one of the reasons well, why their volumes are contracting right now. As we all know, manufacturing and industrial economy is is weak as the PMIs are below fifty and all that kind of stuff. So, right, yeah, yeah. okay, so. Um, that wraps it up for Old Dominion. Anything else you want to talk about, JP? You did a couple of articles. We, the thing is, we already hit on Mode and SunTech. Uh, if you have any thoughts there, we'd love to talk that. But you also wrote an article on uh, uh, FreightWaves just launched a uh, rate predictor. That could be interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was really cool. Um, it's something that uh, our CEO, Craig Fuller, unveiled at um, FreightWaves Live Chicago as part of Sonar 5.0. But he wanted to kind of talk more about it, talk about why we did it, uh, what its what its sort of use case is, and what differentiates it. And so I got to talk to one of the directors of data science at FreightWaves, Scott Warland, who's like, he, he's one of those great data scientists who's clearly a genius, like he's a Vanderbilt PhD, but he's also not like such like a nerd that like you can't, you can't have a conversation. So he's like a normal guy. You're telling me that he's predicting weather. <laughs> uh, weather and flooding. Yeah, a lot in of his, a previous life. a lot of his doctoral research was for the government um, predicting you know, flooding on you know tons and t- you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of small bodies of water 
based on whatever weather events were happening because only a tiny fraction of these rivers are actually have gauges on them. And so he was building machine learning models that could, uh, you know, learn how to do that, which seems quite complicated. As we know, um, the economics of the frame markets are also complicated. Very complicated. And so, yeah, he, he told me some pretty interesting things. Um, one, one of the questions, actually, one of the comments we got on the article was someone asked us, you know, how extensively have you back-tested this predictor against historical, uh, you know, assessments of trucking spot rates, like truck stop or DAT? Mm-hmm. And he kind of said, yeah, we, we do that, but we don't necessarily change our model. We we're not trying to overfit historical data. We actually think that we can come up with something that's more empirical and rational and based on, you know, sort of uh, objective market conditions, we understand the limitations of these assessment tools that are, you know, just aggregates of reports um, that are incomplete, that could be, um, you know, sort of... Oh, I enter wrong information all the time. As yeah, a and, and, my, yeah I, and markets are dynamic. All Every yeah. single market is dynamic. So. Yeah, and so he was, he was kind of like, yeah, we kind of use it as a sanity check, but we're completely happy to deviate uh, you know he said some of the lanes were very close to historical assessments some of the lanes were you know quite far off and frankly in a lot of those cases we feel that the market simply hasn't caught up to where we um you know the the sort of the reality of, of did, did you say that the, the the ones that are the, the most similar are the most liquid lanes um he i believe that he did i think we yeah. specifically mentioned chicago to atlanta as being as being very similar mm-hmm. but you know with these when, when you deal with just reports and you have a fraction of the company's reporting and they're only reporting a fraction of their actual transactions you one of the examples we looked at was like okay if i'm trying to price a load from nashville to casper wyoming um if i and i look at it, an assessment tool i'm going to be basing a load you know price for a load today you know, it's going to be an average of 90 days worth of transactions across four states. And it's just like, what does that even really tell you? Like, it, like it's almost more efficient to do price discovery just by calling a ton of trucks. It really is. I, and I always liken it to, um, so so basically Chicago to Atlanta is like going out and buying a, a share of Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. You know what the price is, yeah. you know, because there's, there's so many, there's so much volume, but it's between, Atlanta it's to, between like a dollar eighty five and two twenty five. Yeah, yeah. Atlanta to Casper, though, is like selling maybe um, like a biotech stock. Biotech, it's a like junk trading farm. in a dark pool and illiquid it, stock. It, yeah. is exactly right. I mean, or, you could your intraday uh, yeah. range, and that could be very yeah. big. Yeah, deep derivatives where you have to get on the phone and call people to to find a buyer. Number one, right? And what they're going to charge because there's really no market for it and, and that was the so the other person i talked to for the article was really interesting michael caney mm-hmm. who you know came to us from riverside transport uh for those listeners who don't know riverside transport is a company based in chattanooga they have about 1200 trucks doing about 350 million dollars of business a year and then they also had a brokerage doing about 70 million um and caney was the president of that brokerage before he came to Freight waves to do customer success, and so he really talked about like how you know what the landscape of available assessment tools are, how brokers use them. Um, you know, and essentially, it's like you 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 put you lick your finger, put it in the air, and then you either add or subtract off DAT and hope that you can get someone to agree to pick up the load, right? Yeah, um, so, that's it, exactly how I how, how I operate. Yeah. <laughs> or or he said this is the other model, very large. Uh, well-capitalized, you know, fast-growth brokerages will often be able to have a floor of carrier reps making sort of uh, non-revenue-generating phone calls yeah, simply, checks, to do, simply to do price discovery and then to start building data yeah. that way. So if you've got 100, you know, young men and women um, who are just, you know, cold-calling carriers all day and entering in what they say, that's one way to do it. Most people can't afford to do that, and so they rely on these imperfect tools. And we just kind of you know, we think of it as an additional data point. We don't necessarily, we're not trying to match existing tools. We're trying to uh, show you sort of operating costs and then adjustments based on market conditions um, that are objective mm-hmm. and empirical. And so, based we, on outbound tender volumes, outbound yeah. tender rejections. Exactly. It's, it's all about the characteristics of both the origin and the destination. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so. 
uh, it was really cool to get those kind of two really different perspectives on the tool, you know, how it's, how it's built, what purpose it serves, where it fits in the niche of broker tools. Um, and yeah, I encourage you guys to check out the article. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you. That's really, really good stuff, JP. And thanks for coming back on. I'm sure we'll see you again soon. Thanks, guys. You bet. Take care, JP. All so right. what, what's next? Seth? All right, Kevin. Uh, you, we're going to do our weekly DHL supply chain pricing power index. So the index actually moved this week. Why? It, it did move because there's no good news. Uh, it moved down to for 15, No good news for uh, who? There's no good news for carriers or brokers. Okay. Uh, for shippers, uh, I guess you could say it's good news, but it's not always good news whenever it drops. Right. Especially uh, if it's because the economy is Because of the economy, right? The yeah, that's economy, hurt their top line. Exactly right. So I, I think most shippers would want uh, to, to pay higher rates for robust sales. Yeah, I would much prefer, uh, you know, inflation and transportation costs and my business performing better. Um, but so what were there any core drivers that moved that from 20? Because it was stuck. We had it at 20 for a couple of weeks and now it's at 15. Uh, what, what were the core drivers of that? You know, I, I think we're still in the cycle of lowering contract rates and that's accelerating right now. Uh, we went off the, the producer price index, which is a, a monthly survey, ec- macroeconomic survey of, of shippers and, and producers. Mm-hmm. And it fell from September 2018 to September 2019, 2.5%, October to October, okay. 2.85%. So we're still cycling through that. We had C.H. Robinson uh, a couple weeks ago talking right. about re- reductions in, in contracts, and we're still going through that cycle. Okay, uh, hopefully, so the, but but that's a healthy thing too, right? You, we have to get, make it through that part of the cycle mm-hmm. to, uh, to 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 get the up market, right? So the core portion of their revenue is re-rating lower. There's pressure there. Exactly right, and and spot rates are are flat. Right, I, I think they moved two cents over the last week. The the, the DAT National Van. Yeah, it's been just sitting at around a dollar forty for has. weeks and weeks. Yeah. Which is better than earlier this year was a dollar twenty eight, right? So it's recovered to a dollar forty, right? Which is still a, a horrible rate for 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 a truck, and it's just sitting there. Yeah, sitting right around operating costs, and that makes sense. I mean, we we've said many times on this sh- uh, program before that it can't really sit at one twenty five forever because we think that operating costs are right around one. Exactly right. Yeah. And I was looking through the the, uh, the TPP the the, the profitability. Uh, and, and basically the, the benchmark on that, on the OR for the, the trucking industry is about 97 to 98, Jeez. which, which, you know, is, it's hard to hang on. Well, that um, puts our old dominion discussion in exactly. a new light, does it, it not? It, it does, you know, 20, you know, 20% better than that. I know. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be, it's going to be a rough winter. As they say, winter is coming. And, uh, and and it could uh, be be rough for a lot of a lot of trucking companies out there, and also for a lot of shippers. I mean, what what are we seeing on the macro side? See, I actually think that uh, we've seen uh, Target reported earnings this week. It was up about fifteen percent. That's two percent of overall uh, U.S. retail spending. And that, Walmart had a great and Walmart as well. That's ten percent of overall uh, U.S. spending, and so. Uh, I do think it's a it's an issue of the haves, uh, the big box stores, and those with the power, and those with the scale, and those with the spending power, uh, are doing well right now. And there, the other thing that's encouraging is it's it seems to be all the way from the low end to the high end, and it's broad based across categories. Like for example, Walmart's in, on fire in groceries, mm-hmm. Target's on fire in apparel, and the other interesting thing is both of them are growing their e-commerce businesses faster than Amazon. Walmart grew theirs at about 40%. Uh, that's about a $20 billion run rate. Target's much smaller. Um, it's, it, I think they're around $5 billion, but they grew their e-commerce business 31% in the quarter. So overall, to me, both of those say, uh, you know, if you add those two together, that's 12% of overall U.S. retail spending. Um, Walmart comped 3 or 4% and Target comped basically 5 So mm-hmm. if you kind of blend those together, you got 12%. That's a really good read-through on the U.S. consumer, 12% of overall retail spending growing 4 or 5%. I mean, that's, that is a nominal rate, but it's a, it's a healthy rate. It's a very healthy rate. So why aren't we seeing that in load volumes? I think it's the excess capacity that we always talk about, right? But, but load, uh, volume. load volumes. Yeah, I'm sorry. sorry, sorry. Lo- load volumes. We, we were very flat yeah. uh, against 2018. 
Yeah, that is a good question, and um, I'm not sure I have a great answer for you. Uh, I know why. I, I know why we're not seeing it in the rates, and that's because of the excess capacity. You're exactly right. In terms right. of the volumes, I mean, it, it, the other thing about OTVI, it's a trailing seven day index, like we we talked about before we came in. Well, here. It's a seven day moving average. It can be, yeah, exactly. It's a seven day moving but average, but it can be volatile. But in general, it's only been running. What would you say? Up about zero to one percent over the past few weeks. Over something the past, like that. Past few weeks, we closed down the third quarter seven percent higher than 2018, and ever since then, we've it's been very flat. You know, maybe yeah. a percent down, maybe a percent up. But right in a very strange, or not strange, but a very tight, uh, flattish. Well, the answer would be, and and also, um, you know, rail volumes and their modal volumes are running even worse than trucking, and so is air cargo. So the answer must be that they're taking price, right? As as I'm thinking through your question, uh, with Walmart and Target, their same store sales uh, up, I think it was four and five percent respectively. It was about an equal blend of track traffic and tickets. So traffic okay. is a proxy for those vo- those freight volumes, whereas ticket is it can be either price, uh, and price increases or a mix shift. So mm-hmm. if people buy you know more uh, high priced TVs relative to groceries, that's going to help your mix. So it's got to be the fact. So if you think about it that way, if it's growing four percent and it's two and two on in terms of uh, mm-hmm. on traffic and ticket, then that actually makes sense. It's it more does, yeah. it's more so in line. Um, Okay, so let's do uh, an in the news segment here. The the biggest transportation company in the news, and interestingly, it hasn't just been this week, but it's been really over the past year. So uh, Fred Smith in particular, but FedEx wrote a very sort of... Uh, and Fred Smith is the founder of FedEx. Correct, the CEO and founder, but he wrote a very sort of... Uh, I don't I don't know what the right word is, uh, but aggressive uh, would probably be my word. Uh, the New York Times basically called him out for saying that they were going to uh, FedEx was going to up their capital expenditures if they got the tax break in 2017 and 2018. And so what happened was the New York Times called them out and they said, not only did you pay zero taxes in 2018, your capital expenditure budget actually fell. And while your dividends and your stock buybacks, and they also canceled their pension plan for their employees. So Fred Smith and FedEx uh, came right back at the New York Times and accused them of the very same thing. So, um, and, then, and then this is on the back of, I mean, FedEx has become sort of a dramatic story here. Uh, has, just yes. looking down the list here, uh, I read an article on CNBC this morning. So they've had a spat with Huawei and the Chinese government. They sued the U.S. government earlier this year because the U.S. government was trying to get them to inspect all the packages coming mm-hmm. into the country. Uh, they've had this spat with the New York Times. They've broken up with Amazon twice. At first, they did the Express, and then they did the Ground. And now the stock's down 30% over the past year, while UPS is up a lot. So, I mean, Kevin, the question here is, what is, just, what is going on with FedEx? Is it fixable? And when did this company become so controversial? It's a very good question, right? So, so basically, writing letters to the New York Times is probably not the most productive way to, to spend your time, even though you get called out for, for something that's more of a macro type of, of situation than maybe FedEx particular. Right. There, um, there must have been a lot of, I, I haven't run a screen for this, but there must have been a lot of other companies that did exactly what FedEx I, I, and the sure New York there, Times did. I, I'm sure there's a lot of companies that did that because share buybacks are, are, are keeping pace and, and increasing uh, as well within, you know, a softening economy right now. So you, you figure that the buybacks should be up on a rise. I don't know. I, do you think Fred Smith, uh, is his time is, is over? I know he's a founder. You yeah. probably never get him out, but is it is yeah. it time to to hand over the reins to somebody else? I mean, I do think that that if the stock continues to be weak, I do think that it'll be up to him, of course, because he's got voting rights and such a big stake in the company. If he wants to step down, it'll be up to him. His uh, long time, I think it's his COO, has been there since like thirty years or something, and I think he's the guy who's being groomed for the next CEO role. Uh, I don't have, I don't have any idea there, but I do think the market may put pressure on him to do so, especially if they kind of stay in the headlines this way while the business is performing so bad, which kind of leads to the next question. The business itself is the business itself fixable. So one of the things was they said, Hey, you know, Amazon's only one or 2% of our revenue. And yet the business is suffering a lot more than that. And they've had a lot of other, they've got 
their business is sort of levered to the trade war and international mm-hmm. trade. I know that's been a big problem. But so Wells Fargo, their transportation analyst, put out they had a bull versus bear. They have these investment dinners out in New York, and they think that uh, earnings per share and uh, margins in the express segment and the multiple have all bottomed. Just to put it in context, they think in 2020. FedEx is going to earn $12 and it trades at about 13 times that, which is at the very low end of its range. It's about 150 something dollar stock. Um, but do you think that the business itself, I mean, they are going to pick up e-commerce share from Target and others, even if they cut ties with Amazon, the overall e-commerce industry, the other 50%, Amazon owns 50% of us e-commerce, but the other 50% of e-commerce is also growing at 15 or 20% every year. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a story. And if we, do if we continue to get positive headlines and sort of if we ever do get the elusive phase one trade deal, right? That's got to be good for FedEx's business. And then the sentiment is so bad on the stock. I mean, it's down 30% while UPS is up 25%. Um, You know, do you think, uh, do you think this is fixable? And do you think we'll look back a year from now and, and think, wow, that was a, you know, uh, we don't buy stocks here, but that was a buying opportunity or people were way too negative on FedEx. And we talk about this uh, quite a bit. We like stocks that get beaten down by bad news, mm-hmm. not catastrophic news, but just bad news. You know, mm-hmm. that you go through a bad cycle. Um, and you're exactly right because e-commerce is growing. Amazon doesn't own all of it. You have Walmart, you have Target, you have one of our favorite companies, Shopify, Shopify yeah. yes, Shopify is becoming a major player in that. So it has some recovery. It needs to pivot like every other company does to the e-commerce craze, right? Yeah. Everyone's having a little bit of an issue uh, defining what e-commerce is, the rise of e-commerce, exactly how to execute e-commerce, what's the the fastest growing e-commerce subdivision. Uh, these are, are questions that that we get all the time. Here at Freight Waves, exactly what's going on in that final mile, and it evolves so quickly that really I don't think anyone has a, a great handle on it. So FedEx yeah. has a perfect opportunity to, to go in and at least uh, keep pace with everybody else. Yeah, and one of the main gripes with the stock, and Wells Fargo talked about this, is their net income to free cash flow conversion, right, is only running at 40 or 50%. And that's low for the industry. And the reason why is they've been doing tons and tons of capital spending on not only planes Mm -hmm. and trucks and trailers, but their network, right? They've been building out this network. So at some point, if they do get that, those volumes to actually return to positive, you do think, I would think that there's some operating leverage that's sort of latent in this business model Mm -hmm. sitting out there. And maybe a year from now, hey, we look back at it and we say, hey, you know, maybe Fred Smith probably, you know, could have been a little bit more quiet on some of these issues, but I do think that maybe the business is performing a little bit better. Yeah, it's attracting a lot of unwanted attention. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, every stock that's been around, every company that's been around for for this long, uh, they weather a few storms, and and this is one for FedEx. We know that it's not going to get a zero. It's not going to, you know, right? So it's just going to recover. Uh, It may lose its its, that that pinnacle of dominance it had for, for decades. Uh, but it'll wear the storm and it'll, 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 it'll grow out of this. I agree. I agree. Um, all right, we're coming up on the hour mark here. So we're going to be real quick here on our long short segment. I'm going to hit it to you quickly here, Kevin. So in October, the cast freight shipment index was down 6%. Okay. Cast freight shipment index, just for background, that covers all modes of transportation, not just even surface transportation. It covers air. It covers North American rail. It covers trucking. It covers everything. Uh, not only was it down 6%, but the two-year stacked comp actually went negative for the first time. And so now we have reversed and erased the Trump bump from 2017 on the tax cuts. My question for you, Kevin, is long or short, the cash freight shipment index turning positive by uh, in mid-2020? Long. 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 So you think we're, we're going to be positive year over year? Uh, yes, by, by mid by by mid twenty twenty, we're gonna be we're gonna be positive on on certainly the the rates, and and that's just simply uh, the shipment volumes. You just think it's easy comparisons. I'm guessing it's easy comparisons, and uh, as long as there's not some huge recession, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna be positive. Okay, now okay, here's our second longer short question, and this one is right up your alley, Kevin. So, top five uh, either public or private brokers. Um, do you think that they are all independent by this time next year, say a year from now, as in 
the top five or the same top five next year or that there's some consolidation in the sector? There's a lot of consolidation, but the top five will be that they're not, they're, I don't think they're going to consolidate. Uh, I, I think in the, say, $100 million to a billion revenue, gross revenue brokerages, you're going to see more consolidation. And why? And so, why do you think the big guys won't consolidate? Do you think it's not regulatory uh, issues, is it? You just think they're going to try to go at it alone and spend on their IT? Yeah, I think they're going to go all in on IT, become technology companies, or as much as as, as they can, and 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 fight back. Okay. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Um, it was a great show. We're going to take next week off for Thanksgiving. But as always, we really thank you guys for listening. We are available on Apple, Spotify, and Spreakcast and all major podcast networks. Thank you for turning tuning in to Great Quarter, guys, and we'll see you in two weeks.